This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. I feel good. Dad, are you singing to your cereal? Come on, Ava. Silk almond milk. Starts the morning on a high note. (laughs) Silk almond milk. With calcium, vitamins A, D, and E. Feel plenty good. Some words have been robbed of all meaning. They've been used, abused, mangled, contorted, weaponized, and stripped of context. If we can't agree on what words mean, then we can't agree on much. This is Origin Story. In each episode, we take a key term from the political or cultural discourse and tell the story of where it came from, what happened to it, and what it means today. By exploring the history of the ideas, we'll try to get a clearer understanding of where we are now. My name's Dorian Linsky, author of 33 Revolutions Per Minute and the Ministry of Truth. My name's Ian Dunt. I'm the author of How to Be a Liberal and a columnist at the Iron Newspaper. So what struck me putting this together, Ian, was that it does actually cross over with our other episodes. <laughs> uh, more than usual, because which I suppose does prove that everything is connected. Oh, yeah. Why are we talking about conspiracy theories? I mean, I look, you look around at the world right now and it feels like we're completely drenched in them. Right. Mm. I mean, obviously, in the States, you have what looks at the moment like a sort of almost a death blow for the political system there, for the democratic system there on the basis of a conspiracy theory, which is that the election was stolen by forces against Donald Trump. You look in the UK. I mean, you know, you have anti-vaccine movements marching through the street, shouting at the leader of the opposition about a conspiracy theory where he protected the paedophile Jimmy Savile, Mm. a conspiracy theory that was repeated in the House of Commons by the Prime Minister. If you look further in Labour, you see responses from the Labour left sort of saying that, you know, that anti-Semitism was a smear orchestrated by the media to take down Jeremy Corbyn. If you look at the criticism of Joe Rogan's podcast on Spotify for spreading anti-vax conspiracy theories, I would even say when you look at some of the sort of people of my own tribe, I don't really think that what I have is a tribe, but whatever, people who are like me and the, the way that we talk about dead cats, almost everything that happens in politics, you're like, it's a dead cat to mm. distract us from this is a kind of conspiracy theory. The idea that Russia sort of, you know, basically made Brexit happen through disinformation, something that is perfectly possible, but you do not have the evidence upon which to decide it. We are kind of drenched in it right now, and I think that's core to, to why we're discussing it now. And that, yeah, and you even mentioned QAnon. Yeah, you know, it's like a religious cult based on conspiracy theories. I, I think there's also one other slight difference between the stuff that we have from, say, the 90s, for instance, which is also the mainstreaming of conspiracy theories, yeah. which is the, the pumping it out from the seat of government from government ministers, people, I would say, like Michael Gove, when he talks about, you know, people don't trust experts anymore as a kind of conspiracy theory mentality, to obviously Donald Trump, who pumped it out about the Chinese invented, you know, global warming, to Hillary Clinton's in a conspiracy theory, to Obama was born in Kenya and therefore wasn't eligible. So that mainstreaming of it feels qualitatively different, and the reason why I think it feels so intense and we're so surrounded by it at the moment. And then the the pandemic is just sort of supercharged here. Yes. Uh, For reasons that we will discuss later. 
So we're just going to start with the traditional OED definition, but with a twist. Mm. Some people claim that the CIA invented the term conspiracy theory in 1964 to discredit anyone who questioned the Warren Commission report <laughs> Sorry, are you serious? So, into the assassination of JFK. So there is a view that the actual word conspiracy theory is in and of itself of a, a conspiracy, conspiracy theory. theory. Is that true? Let's find out. Oh. The OED says conspiracy theory noun, the theory that an event or phenomenon occurs as a result of a conspiracy between interested parties, especially a belief that some covert but influential agency, typically political in motivation and oppressive in intent, is responsible for an unexplained event. First citation is from 1909. Second citation is from Karl Popper in 1952. I call it the conspiracy theory of society. It is the view that an explanation of a social phenomenon consists in the discovery of the men or groups who are interested in the occurrence of this phenomenon. Holy God, because I've actually read lots of stuff by Popper right. on conspiracy theories. I never knew that he was basically coining the phrase at the same That's- time. Conspiracy theorist, as opposed to theory, first appears in the New Statesman in 1964. But then when I looked into it, there's an article in the Skeptical Inquirer which found even earlier usages of conspiracy theory going back to 1870 Hmm. and still basically having the kind of the modern meaning, the pejorative meaning. So it wasn't the CIA. (laughs) Who would have thought? It turns out. (laughs) There may be more of this as a repeated theme. (laughs) Well, sometimes it was the CIA. It's a complicated world. So what do you think of the definition there? Yeah, I mean, it's fine. There's the problem throughout the literature that I found, which is disassociating the pejorative sense from the fact that conspiracy theories do exist. I mean, Watergate is a conspiracy theory. You know, and No, 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 no. That is a theory about a conspiracy, right? So like a prosecution's <laughs> case in a racketeering trial, right, mm-hmm. is a theory about a conspiracy, which then the prosecution needs to prove, Right. The investigation into Watergate or Iran-Contra is a theory about a conspiracy, which is not the same as a conspiracy theory. I think a conspiracy theory, in its, it baked into its definition, is the fact that the conspiracy does not exist. So I agree with that. But what I've noticed in the literature is people really struggle to disassociate them. So, for instance, one of the books I read capped them up when you were talking in and, and their definitions were, you know, lacking in sort of reason, lacking in an evidential base, et cetera, et cetera. Another tried to create a, a phrase conspiracy belief that would basically operate for the stuff over here. So you mm, can protect mm. stuff like a wrong contra over there. Right. And I do think that in standard usage, it makes it quite difficult and that we could actually use a phrase that refers to conspiracy theories that actually bloody happened <laughs> as opposed to ones where we can be very, very confident that, that they did not. But given, you know, where we are with it, I mean, the, the OED one, this I think is the first time I've said we this before on this yeah. program, is absolutely fine by me. David Aronovich, in his book Voodoo Histories, looks at some definitions, isn't happy with any of them. And he suggests one that I quite like, the unnecessary assumption of conspiracy when other explanations are more probable. That's very good. It is good. That would apply to Watergate or Wrong Contra. Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, yeah. It would preserve them. It would preserve, them it would preserve yeah, yeah, theories yeah. about yeah. conspiracies. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to begin, like any conspiracy theory podcast, <laughs> by telling you a story. <laughs> Buckle up, <laughs> as I believe they say. I'm so tempted to just leave this room right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> so I'll still be talking when you come back. So, on the 1st of May, 1776, a Bavarian lawyer called Adam Weishaupt forms a group of outstanding individuals dedicated to promoting freedom, equality and rationalism. Hmm. And he calls this group the Illuminati, which represents enlightening the understanding by the sun of reason, which will dispel the clouds of superstition and prejudice. 
Hmm. It's quite sounds, fond of all of those things, really. It sounds quite quite good. Basis structure on the Freemasonry with lots of rules and hierarchy. In fact, originally he wanted to get the Freemasons interested, but they kind of hmm. told him where to go. So he kind of sets up his own sort of version of that. Unfortunately, they fall afoul of the Bavarian government. Just nine years later, the government bans the Illuminati, kicks out Weishaupt. It all falls apart. At its peak, it had at most 2,500 members, mm-hmm. most of whom fell out with one another. Because <laughs> Weishaupt apparently was quite the pain. <laughs> this experiment fails. In 1789, though, the French Revolution happens, and its opponents need someone to blame, other than the obvious people doing the revolutin. Mm. And the bad guys in conspiracy theories always have certain qualities. They are unfathomably evil, extremely clever, and hyper-competent. <laughs> they meet in secret, and they are responsible for everything you don't like. Mm-hmm. And in the Middle Ages, this meant they were literally in league with Satan. Mm-hmm. It's just like, in a, in a way, Satan himself, the invention of Satan, is a conspiracy theory, like, to explain oh, why, yeah, yeah, why yeah, bad yeah. things happen, right? So the witch craze was a conspiracy theory that lasted for almost 300 years and killed tens of thousands of mm-hmm. people who, um, mm-hmm. it turned out, were not witches. Yeah. And, like, most conspiracy theory targeted, you know, a group that people didn't want, wanted to distrust anyway, yeah. in this case, namely women. Yeah. So in the 1790s, two books are published which accuse the Illuminati, who, let's remember, no longer existed at this point, mm. of organising the French Revolution. One by a Frenchman called Augustin Barouel, and one by a Scotsman called John Robeson, whose book was called Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religions and Governments of Europe Carried on in the Secret Meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati and Reading Societies. <laughs> which is... Back then, they, they didn't have the title and then the subtitle. It was just... Everything was in the title. <laughs> And these books really quickly made their way to America, where they're picked up by the Federalists, who come to believe that the Illuminati are undermining the Republics. They huh. accuse their rivals, the Democrat Republicans, of being in league with the Illuminati, which is odd because the Illuminati were meant to be in favour of revolutions against yeah, monarchs, yeah, yeah. and now apparently they're against them. What can you do? The idea was so popular in America that 30 years later there was an anti-Masonic party, which is popular for a brief while. And 60 years later, Mark Twain wrote an unfinished novel called Tom Sawyer's Conspiracy. <sighs> which Tom and Huck form a, a secret society. <laughs> so this is very much kind of a part of entered the American mm-hmm. the bloodstream. Now, Barrowell got sent a letter from a reader claiming that actually it was the Jews, not the Illuminati. And pro- oh, the Jews, you say? And Barrowell, to his credit, refused to publish it in case it sparked pogroms. Hmm. In the 19th century, anti-Semitism is on the rise. They are sort of blamed retrospectively for the French Revolution, and they sort of take on the role of the Masons and the Illuminati, and you see this in the Dreyfus Affair, one of your favourites. <laughs> My favourite topics, which one also topics. comes up almost every single Almost every episode. Right, that's so what I'm saying, right? <laughs> so there's the idea that sort of the Jews are France's enemy within. So 1897, the Dreyfus Affair is in full swing. Meanwhile, in Basel, Switzerland, Theodore Herzl is chairing the first Zionist Congress. And a few years later, a book begins circulating in Russia, which claims to be the minutes of secret meetings held behind closed doors at the Congress. And in the minutes, the Zionists lay out their dastardly plan to foment wars, revolutions, recessions, and so on, until the world is so traumatised and weak that the Zionists can take over. Hmm. Now, in this book, somehow they claim to be responsible for communism, anarchism, liberalism, republicanism, and monopoly capitalism. (laughs) This is very hardworking. All at the same time. So real real centrists, (laughs) they really pull together everything, everything there. And what's interesting here is that it doesn't have the classic anti-Semitic tropes like blood libel Hmm. or any reference to the betrayal of Jesus. Oh, interesting. It's very new. And this book, you've heard of it, is called The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Hmm. This becomes very popular after the First World War, which is another big earth-shaking traumatic event that some people wanted to find someone to blame for. 
And the British edition is called The Jewish Peril. comes out in 1920. Winston Churchill writes, This worldwide conspiracy for the overthrow of civilization and for the reconstitution of society on the basis of arrested development of envious malevolence and impossible equality has been steadily growing. Oh, dearie me. Mm. The Spectator demands a royal commission to investigate the theory that Jews caused the First World War. It says, we must drag the conspirators into the open, tear off their ugly masks and show the world how evil and dangerous are such pests of society. So, very mainstream. A few months later, though, a Times reporter proves that the protocols is actually a hoax. Plagiarises two texts from the uh, 1860s. Mm-hmm. One of which was anti-Semitic, one of which didn't even mention Jews, but they basically just changed the... It was a kind of, like, find and replace right, right. On, on this text. But it doesn't stop it. It doesn't stop it from catching on because there is so much anti-Semitism out there that people are kind of using it for their own end. So in Mein Kampf, Hitler says the fact that it has been called fake proves that it must be true. <laughs> and then... This is a form of reasoning which we will return yes. to later in this program. But then he adds another form of reasoning we will encounter that even if it isn't literally true, it's broadly along the right lines. Uh-huh, right. Okay? <laughs> and the Nazis sort of... Fold that. They, they, it's not like their anti-Semitism comes from this book, but they use it. And in 1944, Hitler's propaganda ministry actually says, if it were possible to checkmate the 300 secret Jewish kings who rule the world, the people of this earth would at last find peace. Mm. Talking about peace. The Sorry, Nazi- what year was that? 1944. Oh, wow. So some chutzpah <laughs> on the part of the Nazi propaganda ministry <laughs> at this particular stage. 1938, the historian called John Guire writes about the members of that unfortunate crew who can see a plot in anything. They can no longer open their newspapers or read a book or go to the cinema without observing the hidden hand at work, either involving them in subtle propaganda or attempting to make them pawns in an elaborate scheme of sabotage. He goes on, It saves so much thinking to think like this, to survey the world and know that all its disorders are due to the malignity of a single group of mysterious plotters. Mm. And you've got to say, he has kind of nailed the essence there. <laughs> before, before conspiracy, I mean, the phrase exists, but before people are commonly using the phrase conspiracy mm-hmm. theory. I mean, that really sums up quite something quite fundamental. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. It's very impressive. It's like you need the world to make sense and to believe that it could be instantly improved if mm-hmm. only you got rid of this kind of tiny group of... Mm-hmm. of bad guys and it comes back to that thing that i think we'll, we'll, we'll come to a bit later as well which is that it provides a kind of morality play for things it provides there's good guys and bad guys you know? mm, mm. don't worry about all this complex you know interaction of systems and you know over years but no no there's good guys and bad guys and, and that's reassuring even if the bad guys are currently in charge because there's always a chance the good guys can take over. And in fact, that's what your mission is. It's a, it's a profoundly, I think, emotionally reassuring process, not just intellectually, but also morally. Well, what's interesting about it, I think, is that it, it, it's a sort of, it's like a, a template that you can apply to anything. So it was like, it's witches, it's Satanists, it's Freemasons, it's the Illuminati, it's mm. Catholics, it's Jews, it's communists. Mm. <laughs> it, like, it's the same, it's the same thinking. Mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, I think what's going to be kind of very useful for us is to sort of break down conspiracy theories a bit. Michael Barkin, who's one of the great scholars of this, divides them into two groups. One is event theories, which, is, the name suggests, are about one major event, like uh, the Reichstag fire, the moon landings, the death of Princess Diana. Right. And then systemic theories are about an overarching conspiracy that spans, like, the entire world and several centuries, up to several centuries. One often obviously leads to another and it sort of overlaps. And I think the key text for me in this has always been Richard Hofstadter's The Paranoid Style in American Politics, an Mm -hmm. essay from 1964. 
I'm just going to quote like the key bit here. The distinguishing thing about the paranoid style is not that its exponents see conspiracies here and there in history, but they regard a vast or gigantic conspiracy as the motive force in historical events. History is a conspiracy set in motion by demonic forces of almost transcendent power, and what it felt to be needed to defeat it it is not the usual methods of political give and take, but yeah. an all-out crusade, yeah. which is kind of it's kind of what we're saying here. It is a vision of the world. It's not looking at one case and thinking, oh, something's a bit fishy here. I think it also kind of speaks to this kind of pre-enlightenment quality that you get with conspiracy theories. You know, that we can talk for it, and we do, mm. you know, when you talk mm. about, you know, the witch hunts or something as, as a form of conspiracy, they, they clearly are. But there is a crucial difference. So once you're in the Enlightenment, really, you know, again, it is that break moment is the French Revolution. I'm simplifying, but let's take it as that. Everything just fundamentally changes. And there is this view of we deploy reason to understand the world. Once you do that, you start thinking about moderation and give and take and balancing rights and competing interests. And this just sweeps all of that stuff aside. And it's like goes right back Mm. to the no, good and bad. You know, good, and we're on the forces of good, and all of that's on the side of bad. It really helps you don't define the bad too much, because then his other view really becomes pertinent. Of just like the the bad guy, he has a, a beautiful quote about the bad guys. He said, "The enemy is not caught in the toils of the vast mechanism of history. Himself a victim of his past, his desires, his limitations. He wills, indeed, he manufactures the mechanism of history, and that sort of." I think is really prescient and and pointed on the way that the enemy is always dressed up. So during the Dreyfus affair, Jews are simultaneously two things. They are subhuman animals, you know, can't control themselves, you know, will Mm. attack you or rape you, whatever. But also they're organizing this global conspiracy where everything you always thought was a lie. And this is a hugely sophisticated project that they're engaged Mm. in. Now, those two things can't be true at the same time. The same for Hitler. I mean, Hitler takes Jews at the beginning as a sort of anti-capitalist device to explain the Great Depression. You know, they're responsible for, you know, they're bankers, the global financiers, blah, blah, blah. Very quickly, they shift into being responsible for the, for the Bolshevik Party and for the rise of communism. And they're the exact opposite. And it's useful to them. And I don't even make a point here of whether the people that spread these conspiracy theories actually believe in them or not. I couldn't give a shit. I, I presume Hitler probably did. He seemed like a fucking madman. He, he didn't seem like a very interesting person in the first place. Mm. And yet it remains useful regardless to be able to just be very malleable with it, to shift it at any time. The falsity of that definition is useful to the person that holds the belief, not a hindrance to that. And I think we're going to talk about this more later, but I do think that the more you look into this, it does expose the fallacy that maybe I had when I was younger, that there were kind of left-wing conspiracy theories and right-wing ones. I mean, there are, but actually the history shows us, like in the protocol, that you can literally blame the same people for Bolshevism and monopoly capitalism. Yes. Although the funny part is with lots of, because you see, for instance, you know, the conspiracy theories about 9-11 tend to be more popular on the left. Conspiracy theories about Obama tend to be more popular on the right. Mm. Just. And yet the one that links things is global finance. Mm. That really works almost equally on right and left throughout history, and the group that is most associated Mm. with global finance are Jewish people. And for that reason, I think that there's constantly with this stuff, you always keep on returning to the chief enemy, the longest enemy of of conspiracy theorists. But then they said it's not actually that. I mean, I suppose 
Because I've heard the argument that all conspiracy theories are, are fundamentally sort of anti-Semitic. It's sort of lurking in the background. No, but I think yeah, what's, interesting, much. what's interesting here is that, is that really you, it goes back way further. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've got, you know, it was almost that anti-Semitism was mapped onto theories about Freemasons, the Illuminati. Right. You know, that's an older thing. And of course, the Illuminati, as we shall discuss, you know, make, make a comeback. Guys, the point of origin story is to provide independent-minded and really rigorously researched information about the world around you that isn't susceptible to the kind of knee-jerk cynicism that you may or may not see on social media sites that you're staring at during your working day. If you want more of that kind of thing, if you want to support us, do go to our Patreon page. We've got various tiers of subscription and various goodies that you can get by doing so. You'll make me and Dorian particularly happy and you'll give us some justification for the fact that we haven't seen our family for three or four months. And hopefully there will be a, a bit of a community vibe, a sort of club vibe. We're sharing ideas. You're feeding back to us, uh, suggesting topics that we might discuss in future, recommending reading materials, documentaries, podcasts, so on about stuff we've already discussed and make it a bit of a two-way street. We'd enjoy that. Search Patreon Origin Story Podcast now to find out more or click the link in the show notes. To get back to the to, to the Hofstadter essay, I think he's very good on on the sort of the psychology of it, and also the the methodology hmm. about this kind of pseudo scholarship. Mm-hmm. This is a paranoid mentality mm-hmm. is far more coherent than the real world, since it leaves no room for mistakes, failures, or ambiguities. <laughs> and so, a conspiracy theorist text is often going to be more exciting and persuasive than a history book, mm-hmm. which has to just go, "Well, we don't know." <laughs> <laughs> or there are, this person thinks this, this person thinks that, but we don't know. It's like, it's the very fact that it's not proper scholarship that makes it exciting to read and kind of very satisfying to write. You know, there always has to be the kind of mountain of documentation. And you know, the footnote. Do, do your research, yeah. Oh my God. We hear now, do your research. <laughs> they're obsessed with research of, their, of a particular kind. <laughs> Now, I wanted to ask you what if you thought there were any sort of... Because this essay, I've totally valorised this essay. I think it's yeah, brilliant. you love it. I'm, I've, you've been talking about this to me for years. Yeah. And I finally now read it. I was like, oh, here we come, the sacred text. It gives you a kind of real history lesson, mm-hmm. but then kind of brings it up to the present day 1964. And he's talking about supporters of Barry Goldwater, the very conservative Republican candidate, the radical right in general, McCarthyism. And there's a book called The United States of Paranoia by Jesse Walker. And he kind of takes issue with Hofstadter and he says, look, he's, he's right about a lot of things. But what he gets wrong is he keeps talking about it as a fringe. And actually, as we discussed in the McCarthyism episode, you know, McCarthy's approval rating was up to about 50 percent. Like oh, yeah. this was not just a radical fringe. The mainstream were into it. And there are mainstream conspiracy theories. And that maybe the, 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 the flaw in, in um, Hofstadter's diagnosis is to sort of go, these are kind of weirdos. Mm-hmm. And not to see how that way of thinking not just has since permeated uh, society, but actually was sort of part of American society long before. I mean, we'll talk about the psychology of this stuff later, but th- one of the chief findings and arguments that they're keenest to stress almost universally is this is not a pathology. I mean, this is not about clinical psychology. Mm. This is social psychology. And that's because it uses standard cognitive mechanisms that we all have but might be less susceptible to. And importantly, you can see the same processes outside of conspiracy theory. 
So you'll see it with tarot cards, with Reiki, with astrology, mm. with horoscopes. All of that stuff, it's the same kind of basis. It's just kind of harmless, right? So we, we yeah, don't yeah, really yeah. care about it. But, but the, the actual process that's taking place, seeking, looking for patterns where there aren't any and, you know, trying to find meaning and, and trying also to dampen maybe your sense of existential anxiety through a projection of a fundamental control to the universe. All of that seems really, really common in the population. And when you look at some conspiracy theories, I mean, you know, after September the 11th, in 2004, I mean, one poll put it 49% of people in New York believed that the government either was responsible or deliberately avoided stopping the attack. So, I mean, this is, it's too widespread to be branded a form of extremism. Well, there's also the, the, there's a, you know, the, the sort of political driver behind a lot of it is a sense of like, well, how can we lose? Like a form of exceptionalism. Like mm. the German, the reason it flows out of the First World War is that, is that Germany is looking for reasons why it lost the war. So it must be it's the stab in the back myth. It's, yeah. We've been undermined here or there. And there's also American exceptionalism. And Hofstadter, in another essay in the same book, quotes someone called D.W. Brogan, because the illusion that any situation which distresses or endangers the United States can only exist because some Americans have been fools or knaves. <laughs> and then you look at McCarthy and he goes, how can we account for our present situation unless we believe that men high in this government are concerting to deliver us to disaster? This must be the product of a great conspiracy on a scale so immense as to dwarf any previous such venture in the history of man. When, when really big things happen and your side loses, and you see it, this is where we're talking, I suppose, about the, the Corbynite conspiracy theories. Mm. It's like, well, how could our brilliant movement have failed? Yes. It must be because, you know, of all these forms of sabotage. Now, it's true, obviously, that we've seen that there was some kind of people inside the Labour Party undermining them. But it's, it's sort of bigger than that. And it mm. comes from this emotional need to be like, how can this country I love be in trouble? How can this political project, how can this person I love have died in a horrible way? Mm. Like, there has to be a big reason, which is why generally people don't come up with conspiracy theories about, like, shit that doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. It's like, why is it always, why is it Princess Diana? Why is it Marilyn Monroe? Why is it John F. Kennedy? Mm -hmm. Why is it not generally just like some guy that was on a sitcom once? They also don't really come up with conspiracy theories about groups that aren't them. Okay, and them in the broader sense. Right, right, so right. Europeans right. feel that way about yeah. Americans, so they would join in with 9-11 yeah. stuff. But... I mean, you take Rwanda, you know, you take the genocide there, okay? That's 900,000 people killed. Mm. That's 20% of the country's population. That is a massive event, whichever way you look at it. How often do you see a conspiracy theory about that on Western websites? Never, mm. right? Because in, in the heads of people, they are not us, right? That is a different group. It is just simply irrelevant. So it's not just the scale of an event, this person. It's how it reflects on your own sense of group identity. Well, it's the vanity of it, so I suppose also the, the, the kind of the weird sort of inverse nationalism of it, that the kind of people who are obsessed with conspiracy theories about the white helmets in mm, Syria, mm. it's really because America has seemed to be anti-Assad. Exactly. And so it isn't exactly. really about Syrians, it's about America being the bad guy again. Yeah, exactly. And because that. America wasn't involved in Rwanda, it's sort of like, well, there's nothing there mm. for, for conspiracy theorists <laughs> in the West. Mm -hmm. Now, this kind of takes us, I suppose, to the event, from the systemic to the event, because Hofstadter's essay came out shortly after the assassination of JFK. His book, The Hitler Conspiracies, where I'm taking some great facts, Richard J. Evans breaks down the features of an event theory. It was one, refusal to accept that a shocking and important event could be down to one person or to chance, which is kind of what we've been saying. Yeah. Two, the qui bono fallacy. 
whoever benefits must have planned it. Yeah, that's exactly what Bono said. That's why it's called that. I once wrote a piece about Bono punning on Queen Bono. It was a real, <laughs> real, real high for me. Um, a focus on witnesses who have disappeared or died, always mysteriously. Huh. Four, the endorsement of unreliable or fabricated evidence as long as it fits the theory, which is rather like Hitler and the protocols. Mm-hmm. Five, automatic distrust of all official versions, which means mainstream historians and journalists as well as governments. And I'm going to add another couple. Conspiracy theorists believe there are no coincidences and every anomaly is significant. Yeah. And they're extremely resistant to changing their minds. Although I have. I, I, was, a, I was something of a teenage conspiracy theorist. And oh, I really? changed my mind about all those things, including the assassination of John F. Kennedy <laughs> in 1963. I see your segues. Yeah, oh, yeah. Personal and the political. <laughs> So I'm going to use this as an example of an event conspiracy, and you're Mm -hmm. going to do one later. Mm -hmm. Now, this is one that, statistically speaking, some of our listeners will probably subscribe to. I should add that before we started researching this, I never paid any attention to this stuff, Mm. really. But I generally had a sense of it was in the upper echelons of conspiracy, like sort of stuff that is like probably we kind of have all come to a conclusion that probably was something a bit fishy Mm -hmm. there. But it's a bit mad to come on and tell a specific story. Mm. But Generally, it's in the realm of something right. probably quite fishy. Well, I mean, that's the power of it, really. Mm. Uh, 1.81% of Americans said they didn't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald oh was God. solely responsible. And in 1979, a Senate committee concluded, based on evidence that turned out to be completely wrong, uh, that there was a second gunman on the grassy knoll. And Johnny Carson joked, next thing you know, they'll be blaming World War II on Hitler. Right. So it was almost so obvious, like, that the audience would go, of course there is a Second gunman. It's totally mainstream. And that continued into, uh, I mean, because I know you're a Bill Hicks fan, right? I mean, I was, mm-hmm. I was in Bill Hicks when I was a kid, yeah. and I remember him always, always back into the left, back into the left, like running gags. It was just, I know. obviously, I kind of idolized him when I was growing up, so I just presumed he must be right. Right. I mean, largely because of the, because of the film. But the film comes, the you know, film is like, or, you know, 28 years after the assassination. Mm. But it's the, the, the theories are starting just a weeks after um, the assassination. A young lawyer hired by Oswald's mother called Mark Lane published an article casting doubt on his guilt. And in Britain, people like Labour MP Michael Foote and theatre huh. critic Kenneth Tynan <laughs> formed the Who Killed Kennedy Committee. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> then the theories really take off after the Warren Commission report in 1964, widely considered a cover-up. Mark Lane writes a best-selling book. This is when the sort of the, the industry really takes off. But the crazy thing is, the report itself gives its critics most of their ammunition because it's 27 volumes long. So most of the Jesus God, most of the uh, arguments that it was a cover-up are seizing on, you know, anomalies and details in the report. So if it is a cover-up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of it's like a really sloppy one, right? Where they give people all this information, like huh. why why publish all twenty seven volumes <laughs> if you don't want people to kind of dig in? And I think this reveals two things that the whole JFK industry really is that one is that historians what they do is they develop a theory and then they test the theory by looking for contradictory evidence. Does this stand up? But conspiracy theorists are pseudo historians who only seek evidence that supports the theory. Mm-hmm. So they're very, very selective. So extremely, you see this all the time, extremely sceptical of the mainstream narrative. Any tiny wrinkle in the mainstream narrative, they're just like, oh, mm-hmm. something suspicious there. And then unbelievably credulous when it comes to any alternative thing. <laughs> they just go, yeah, okay, no, that's, it's like, it's, it's all in, in, one, in one way. It's a cognitive bias. 
So, for example, if you point out, I'm going to tell you that a considerable number of people interviewed by the Warren Commission died over the next few years. Mm-hmm. Right? Sounds pretty shady. Right. Then, if you, if I then say it was only a small percentage of the total interviewees, because they interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people, most of them were actually really minor figures in the case, like mm-hmm. Oswald's landlady. And most of them died in really ordinary circumstances due to illness and so on. Mm-hmm. So, a conspiracy theorist starts with a belief and then diligently creates the sort of illusion of solid research around it. And the important point here, and I think this is maybe where it's, it is really showing its age, is that there isn't one conspiracy theory about JFK. There are theories, plural. So you get this general idea that you or I might have felt, okay, yeah, maybe Oswald didn't act alone. That's where your 81% comes from, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not having to commit to anything there. Mm-hmm. And there was a split in opinion, wasn't there, in the Warren Commission about whether there was someone else involved. They just didn't have the evidence, or about whether to say that they thought there might be, because right. it just wasn't the evidence. But it was within the realm of a normal yeah. mainstream debate. Yeah, so when he says 81%, that doesn't mean 81% of Americans were conspiracy theorists. It just means they think, they haven't thought much about it. Mm. They're just like, hey, it seems weird that one guy did it, and wasn't there something about a magic bullet, you know. But actually, the theorists disagree hugely about who organised the plot and how it was carried out. And the result that we now know, that we didn't, you know, Michael Foote did not know in 1964, is that not one single theory stands up. There isn't the most compelling narrative is still the Warren Commission. Mm. Despite, you know, almost 60 years of efforts to debunk it, (laughs) there isn't another coherent theory that goes, it was these guys and this was the other shooter and this was how it was done. Mm -hmm. Because they can't actually agree. But you might not know that if you've watched Oliver Stone's JFK... Because what he does is he mashes all these different event theories into this one big systemic theory about the deep state. So the whole movie, I think, is about paranoia. It's about conspiracy theories. Oliver Stone does not agree. (laughs) He does not think that. He thinks it's about the assassination of Kennedy. Um, You'd never seen this. No, I watched it last night and... I was unprepared for how angry it would make me. Really? I was expecting to think this is going to be a charming and entertaining piece of absolute tosh. That's what I was going in for. And I just found myself getting morally quite incensed. It's basically the longest advert for a position that I've never previously held as a journalist, which is that maybe people should be able to sue for libel after they're dead. (laughs) Because... The libel that he commits on dead people is so appalling, so atrocious. I mean, he has characters there, real people who existed in the real world, who he he gets to admit to things on screen that they, throughout their life, refuse to admit it, presumably because it never happened. And then 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 when they die, of course, it's a mysterious... The Joe Pesci monologue never happened. It's entirely made up. But ultimately... The point that I just checked out was Lyndon Johnson. I mean, Lyndon Johnson, just, look, fine. Like Kennedy, who absurdly enough is portrayed as this sort of peace warrior, you know, in the film, who's going to end the military industrial complex. Kennedy and Johnson both escalated in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Lyndon Johnson is someone who passed two pivotal historic civil rights acts and another act on equality on, on housing and on vote, the voting act. Absolute landmark legislation. But the first black man into the Supreme Court, first black man to a cabinet secretary position, he threw money at the poorest public schools, did more to alleviate poverty in America than any other president that I'm aware of in that century. Far more impressive than Kennedy, who was basically a kind of 
drug-addled sex deviant, you know, whose chief accomplishment was to develop a reactionary form of Keynesianism. I mean, he is a truly impressive figure, and he deserved better, frankly, than to have Oliver Stone turn around and go, he helped orchestrate the assassination of Kennedy. That was the point where I was like, okay, that's it. I am, I am out. This is an absolutely and, putrid mess of moral horror. And conversely, when you actually read about Jim Garrison, oh my Jim Garrison's God. case... Jim Garrison being the protagonist yeah. of this film, played by Kevin Costner, is yeah. a great hero. Yeah, And I think the New York Times called it one of the most shameful cases <laughs> in the history of the American legal system. Well, did, did it not involve him drugging people into confessions? A character that does not feature in the movie, who was, yes, who was drugged and hypnotised <laughs> into a confession. <laughs> so, you know, and, unbelievable. And, and it's inter- I've read a lot about JFK. And what's interesting there is there are two things. One, my kind of assessment of it is like, there's the artist. Does Oliver Stone want to be an artist or does he want to be a conspiracy theorist? Huh. Because the movie in itself can be seen as and was defended as such by people like Roger Ebert as this kind of hallucinatory, kind of fantastical, is it real, isn't it? You know, absolutely, you know, virtuosic kind of editing and storytelling. Just incredible. Mm. Considering it's basically people talking for three hours. That's all. There's no mm. action in it, really, mm. is there? Apart from the, the assassination. As long as he then doesn't try and stand by everything in it. But then he published a book in which he basically stood by everything in it. He continues to this day to say, I wouldn't change a thing, even though quite a lot of the stuff in there has been completely debunked. I mean, you know, it starts with all this sort of black and white news. It starts with yeah. sort of a 10-minute history lecture of how you get there. It ends with a bunch of sort of information on screen where he just continues to lie. Yeah, yeah. There's just more lie. To the last second, he continues to lie. And so I, I just... Oh, and incidentally, one of the last lines in the whole film is, truth <laughs> is the most important value we have. And that's when I just thought, yeah. oh, my, you how can you say it with a straight face? Well, like, well there's a, a 1996 interview that I came across in one of the books that I was researching, where Oliver Stone said that a conspiracy which he called The Beast was responsible for killing not just JFK, but Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King and bringing down Nixon, who was oh. somehow also the victim of oh, wow. The Beast. That's good of him to delve outside of his usual political tribe, though, to, to help out Nixon. Well, he said Nixon wanted to change things. I was like, he certainly did. He certainly did. Now, the reason why we've, we've talked a lot about JFK is not just because I suppose it's where most people will have encountered the conspiracy theories. Like I said, great film, terrible history. You don't even think it's a great film. I absolutely do not think okay. that. And I think why it's interesting, and maybe also when I sort of, you know, maybe came of age and got interested in this stuff, is there is a theory that conspiracy theories proliferate in, in anxious times, right? So yep. you think, okay, yep. why were Germans in the 1920s, you know, coming up with stabbing the back myth? Well, mm. because it was really bad. Because yep. the economy was down the shitter and they'd lost a war and it was like awful. A lot of times people are looking for someone to blame. The 90s, relatively, you would say, financially, yeah. economically stable, no major wars that, you know, the West is involved with. Hugely paranoid decade in pop culture. You've got you know, JFK, X-Files, lots of musicians, some of whom I interviewed, you know, talking about New World Order and hmm. stuff like that, the Illuminati. Truman Show, kind of a classic conspiracy theory fable, I suppose. Oh, yeah, yeah. it is. And in politics, you had this sort of industry of theories about the demonic scheming of Bill and Hillary Clinton. 
Mm. which is where I think you see in Gabriel Gatehouse's uh, podcast series, BBC podcast series about QAnon. He really traces back a lot of this stuff, a lot of this mm-hmm. thinking to, to the satanic quality of those conspiracy theories. Matrix. Sorry, I will stop saying Matrix. conspiracy theory films from the 90s. In oh, a second, no, conspiracy that. theorists love the Matrix mm-hmm. because it's they're taking the red pill. In religion, at the same time, because it's the end of the millennium, resurgence in apocalyptic thinking, which is a form of conspiracy theory. And the great historian of millenarianism, Norman Cohen, also wrote a book about the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And so he was kind of really interestingly, we're talking about like 50s here, that he's, he's sort of linking that thinking, you know, that really apocalypticism is a kind of conspiracy theory you're waiting for. You're waiting for the Messiah to come and, mm. you know, kick the arse of the evildoers who have made life on earth so appalling. And then it's all supercharged by the internet, which made conspiracism faster, easier, because you didn't need to get to the library, <laughs> um, and more collaborative than ever before. So the point that I came across, Jonathan Kay, that's it, in Among the Truth is, he's going like, you, you don't have, it's not as diffuse as the JFK theories. Mm. Now, a lot of the time, people will collaborate and they will agree on a theory. So it seems more compelling because mm. it sort of adds, adds oh, up because they don't want to contradict each other so much. Huh. And the journalist Michael Kelly in the 90s coins the phrase fusion paranoia to describe this sort of blurring of left and right. The fact that you can't always tell where a conspiracy theorist is coming from politically because mm. there are right-wing 9-11 truthers and left-wing 9-11 truthers right, and looking right. at anti-vaxxers and you, they're coming from all over and sometimes i think this is really important there's no politics at all it's not serious the modern obsession with the illuminati comes from an author called robert anton wilson oh yeah i read those books cosmic trigger read them when the, i was a kid oh right so the illuminati broke my mind and he's sort of trying to sort of parody the paranoid style a bit like umberto echo in yeah. in foucault's yeah. pendulum or like thomas pynchon in crying a lot 49 it's, it's in the sort of tradition of kind of like well isn't this fun and he was a member of a spoof religion called the discordians yeah, and, yeah. A, and an art project called operation mindfuck i'm a big fan of the discordians actually right. like i that that looked like they were having a really so good the time they did exactly the they just right agents of moo moo and <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah exactly so they were a lot of fun but then like the reason people still talk about the illuminati on the mm-hmm. internet my daughter has asked me not in a serious way but she's just like not are they real but the why people keep talking about the illuminati oh, and this obviously goes all the way back to adam weishaupt but it really sort of starts again with this kind of sort of joke novel mm. But a very kind of straight-faced joke. And actually, if you look at the origins of Pizzagate and QAnon now, in the beginning stages... You're not going to blame Robert Anton Wilson no, for QAnon, I. <laughs> no, but there, there is a lot of role-play and irony that when Q first uh-huh, started posting yeah. on 4chan, it was kind of just like a gag. It's like, oh, he's pretending to be a government insider. That's what we do on here. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of, when it broke out and got mainstream, people started posting outside 4chan. Then it became taken more... Seriously, it took on a life of its own, even though initially, you know, there is in that whole kind of internet culture, this kind of, is it real or is it just a bit of fun? Mm. You know, and as we've seen, like, that can lead to some really sort of awful places. And so QAnon, I want to say, is this sort of the ultimate hybrid, this is a fusion paranoia. Can you describe it a bit, the conspiracy theory itself on QAnon? QAnon, the, the, the core conspiracy theory was that there is a cabal of very powerful pedophiles, including inevitably Hillary Clinton and Hollywood celebrities, you know, top Democrats and so on. And they were abusing and Pizzagate is kind of like 
preceded, I think preceded it. It did, preceded it, but was related to it. Again, this obsession with exposing paedophiles, which mm-hmm. you see in satanic panic in the 1980s as well, when people were being taken to court for, for stuff that just never happened. Mm. So that's a really potent driver. And then the idea, and this is where it resembles an apocalyptic cult, is that the storm was coming. And that any day now, Donald Trump, the sort of messianic hero, was going to, you know, give the orders for the kind of the feds, who in this scenario were, were good, it's generally the bad, were going to swoop down and arrest all of the, arrest all of the paedophiles. And that's the storm. So it, it's got this kind of religiosity to it. It's got this sort of internet meme so culture to it. So it's almost like an ancient millenarian cult meets the internet, meets, you know, with bits of the left and right and all these other conspiracy theories. So what's, you see in the internet age, there's always been the case that somebody who believes in one conspiracy theory is more likely to believe in others. There aren't that many people who would just go, well, I think there's one, but no, none of the others, you know. And I think QAnon is sort of maybe the ultimate expression, like I think some of the anti-vaxxer protests we're seeing now, where it's like everything. It's vaccines and it's paedophiles and it's George Soros and it's Bill Gates. The Avengers Assemble of conspiracy theories. Right. And this is what we're seeing. They're just kind of, you know, agglomerating more and more and more. It's so, I see, I just, I spent so long trying to look at it as a politics thing and just thinking this is too stupid to let my brain come in contact with it. That now that you describe it as sort of like religion meets the internet with a weird bit of jiggery-pokery politics around it. Yes. That makes much more sense to me to evaluate it in fundamentally sort of religious terms rather than political ones. Well, and there's, and there's all these sort of... I mean, in this book, Among the Truthers, which is... He's talking about 9-11 truthers a few years ago, Jonathan Cain. He breaks them down into into eight types. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of sort of different personality types and motives. Shall I, shall I give you that? Oh, yeah, yeah, please. Okay. So it's the midlife purpose seeker. <laughs> like it's just it's something to do. It's, it's, a, it's, a, the, it's a person I know well. The culture warrior, mm-hmm. you know, the more straight political thing. The trauma survivor, which might be, for example, the parent of an autistic child mm-hmm. who becomes an anti-vaxxer. The cosmic voyager. The clinical conspiracist, which is to say, like, medically paranoid. Like, some of them are... Um, mm-hmm. mentally ill the old-fashioned crank who's very clever but feels thwarted yes in everyday yes. life yeah. the evangelical dude without the cummings effect but <laughs> <laughs> i mean i suppose pierce corbin is right? yes yes yeah. yeah the evangelical doomsayer and the the noisy firebrand <laughs> so there's actually quite a lot of t- doing different jobs some people are great at getting up at rallies and firing people up and crazy and then other people are like, really socially awkward but they've done all the research etc mm. etc and some people have done loads of drugs and some people would you know wouldn't do any drugs and mm-hmm. so I mean, and that's just the eight that he comes up with i mean you could come up with more it's such a huge chaotic subject and a lot of the time you don't it's hard to tell you look at a crowd, and, and I think there's probably confirmation bias as we study them. You look at an anti-vax protest, and you could pick out evidence that it's far right. You can also pick out evidence that it's far left. You can also pick out evidence that it's a bunch of new age hippies yeah. who went yeah. too far. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. you, can, you can find all of those groups together because it's really not, it's no longer as simple as when Hofstadter was writing when there was a certain kind of person who really hated communists. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viore. V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. So yeah, there's so many that we could, we, could, we could pick on, but I did JFK, and what are you going to pick on? Well, September the 11th, which I think is, is sort of v- partly very interesting and partly very boring. It's very boring in the sense that it's just not very interesting conspiracy theories to look at, because we all saw it happen, and because it really was quite hard to push at unexplained problems there, in a way that it isn't with JFK. You know what I mean? There was less that was known about mm. it at the time. and mm. We really all saw 9-11 take place. But 9/11- jet fuel... Can it melt steel beams? <laughs> yes, it can. In fact, it can. Now, you'd be surprised how much time I've spent reading about the temperature of jet fuel and steel beams. For younger listeners, this is an event in September 2001, and it was where four airlines were hijacked by 19 al-Qaeda terrorists using Stanley knives, no more than that, and took down the Twin Towers. It was, I mean, still, I think, probably to this day, the most seismic political event in my lifetime, I, I presume yours as well, with the sort of biggest, really, it wasn't really until the financial crash in 2008, or I would say probably more Brexit, Trump in 2016, that the narrative really moved. From well, it was, our, it was our JFK, I suppose. It absolutely was. But, and like JFK, it's a light bulb moment, right? So it's one of those things you can say, where were you when? Yeah. That it makes it a classic situation for conspiracy theory yeah. thinking. And they took very many different forms. I mean, yes, and you just mentioned this idea that kerosene doesn't burn hot enough to melt steel and therefore the buildings wouldn't have fallen. In actual fact, jet fuel burns at 800 to 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Steel does melt at 2,750 degrees. But the steel frames didn't have to melt. They just had to lose their structural strength, right, which is yeah. precisely what happened. And these explanations, you can find them all the way down. Of course, there was plenty of conspiracy theories about the Jews. I mean, primarily that there were no Jews killed in the attack. And that was part of a conspiracy theory. Israel did this in order to get America to attack its enemies in the Middle East. In actual fact, somewhere between 270 and 400 Jews were killed in the attack. That's roughly tracks the number of Jews living in the New York area at mm. the time. I think it's interesting, however, for two reasons. The first is, it's the, it's the first real post-internet conspiracy theory. And it's not Web 2.0 of proper user-generated content yet, 2001. But it is the world of blogs and chat rooms mm. and email chains. And that makes it quite qualitatively different with the speed it moves on. There's a documentary called Loose Change, which spread. And I saw myself in this year in New York when I was visiting my cousin. I remember her boyfriend put it on. And I was just like, what did, on earth am I Didn't that come at? out with YouTube? Was that not a few years later It got uploaded onto YouTube. Right, and right. is arguably the first viral hit on YouTube, right. actually. And then had a second peak, really, in sort of around 2003, I mean, really when the Iraq war happens, mm. Iraq war being one of the consequences of, of September the 11th, as people sought to try and explain why on earth this was taking place. But I think the key quality it has that makes it interesting is in the aftermath. And it's not so much about the conspiracy itself, but what government did, 
which is that I think it's the first moment that you start mainstreaming conspiracy theory. So once the initial event passes, George Bush is having a hard time selling an invasion of Iraq. He had an easy time selling an invasion of Afghanistan, mm. hard time selling the invasion of Iraq. And then he starts saying something interesting. He says, first of all, to Blair, and Blair says to him, look, mate, don't say that because that's crazy. Mm. But then he starts saying it in public. On November the 7th, 2002, for the the first time in public, he starts saying that, suggesting that Saddam Hussein in Iraq was partly responsible for September the 11th. Yeah, which is a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy theory. It's completely, I mean, the Ba'athist regime in Iraq was completely secular, had no operational relationship with these sort of Islamic fundamentalists of Al-Qaeda. And that's very, very, very well understood. I mean, it was found by the 9-11 Commission, the CIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, the FBI, the National Security Council, the Senate report of pre-war intelligence on Iraq. I mean, you cannot get something that has been better demonstrated mm. than that fact. He later tries to walk all of this stuff back. So I never mm. said that Iraq had anything to do with it. He did. But I think that moment, more than the weapons of mass destruction sort of stuff, which right, you could, right. you know, there was lots of messing around and dodgy dealings with documents, but ultimately you just got a sense that, that people probably did believe that they had those. Mm. Here they really didn't. And they were told by the CAA that that relationship was not the case and they said it anyway. And for the first time, way before Trump, way before Brexit and Michael Gove saying, you see from a, the, you know, the, the head of government, conspiracy theories starting to spew out from the White House itself. Let me talk to you a bit about psychology. Well, sort of psychology and politics. Let me break down what we think is happening in this process. I mean, the first thing to mention is that the the whole notion of conspiracy theory is rooted in a distortion of quite common functional cognitive processes, which explains why they are quite widespread. The first one is pattern seeking, right? So we all do this and we need it to survive, right? So, I mean, we notice a pattern. If you get hit by a car, things go very badly for you. And then we therefore think, well, I'm going to stay away from cars. And hmm. our ancestors would have noted tracks in the woods and that leads you to prey. Now, this makes it very hard for us as humans to recognize true randomness. We're very susceptible to illusory pattern perception. In fact, an experiment that they do where they get people to write down what it would look like to have a hundred coin tosses is quite revealing because people are terrible at imagining what randomness looks like. They will have no more than three on one side at a time. And in actual fact, we, we have a real inability. We really undervalue the likelihood of clusters of events. Now, in history, when you start looking at politics, it's very dangerous to have that pattern assumption going into it because history and politics are extremely chaotic because of lots of different people trying to achieve different things of different levels of competence operating in systems that can produce outcomes that you would not have expected in other words we have a higher sensitivity to agency we tend to see agency people's purposeful activity even when it isn't really there we just can't help but see agency well there's a there's um there's a phrase a word i discovered called pareidolia Mm-hmm. which is a term for seeing patterns in random data. Yeah. And look, and we all have this. It's just some of us are more susceptible to it than others. Also, we think, I mean, I've got to tell you, all of the academic work on conspiracy theory is f- new. It's really, I mean, really, the, the serious work has only been really taking place since 2007. There's a bit from before then. There's a real uncertainty around the conclusions, and there's a big division that I'm about to come to. Another is what humans do under conditions of fear and uncertainty. Just typically speaking, that we become very aware of our environment mm. and quite paranoid, and rightly so, right? Like if I'm walking through a park and I see a stick that looks like it might be a snake, the most rational thing for me to do is to assume it's a snake and be careful rather than assume it's a stick. Yeah. And that's really what we do in our day-to-day lives. So then the thinking here is, again, to speak to what you said about religion earlier, 
that our approach to conspiracy theory is like a religion. So there's a philosopher, Tim Crane, who defined the religious impulse as this this sentiment. This can't be all there is. There must be something more to the world, which I think is, is a very good summary of where that instinct comes from. Yeah. And that's the assumption of this is what's happening with conspiracy theory. Yeah, that's the argument. It's just kind of like it's one of those kind of it's one of those morbid symptoms of what happens when a lot of people stop believing in God. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so then you, you get these key moments, war, assassination, rapid industrial change, where people essentially go through that moment of, you know, the snake and the stick. And they go into a sort of realm of thinking there must be more to it. And they start looking for patterns. They start looking for agency. The manner in which they do so is usually betrayed by a kind of causal bias. It's a very common error, and it sounds absurd when you say it, but you realize that we pretty much all do it. It's an error of reasoning which presumes that causes must be proportional to their effect. So it's very hard for us to accept that the death of a president would just be by some lone whack job, right? It's very hard for us to accept that the whole world shuts down under a virus because one little thing escaped maybe from a lab somewhere or in some Mm. market somewhere. Instead, we presume that there must be big, spectacular causes for big, spectacular events. Now, that's completely wrong. (laughs) But that's it. Why why couldn't Diana die in a car crash? Mm -hmm. Because she was Princess Diana. Exactly. People die in car crashes all the time, but it can't. Why could Marilyn Monroe not die in an overdose? Because it's Marilyn Monroe. It's like... Uh, yeah, I suppose this is what we saw, you know, around uh, maybe on the more sort of even sort of, you know, left and center was the, the some of the, the theories that came up around the exaggerations that came up around after Brexit and Trump being elected, that it was such a shock. It was so how can this be that people got kind of carried away, like some people got kind of carried away with with obvious you know, with things that were real, there were attempts to manipulate people on Facebook and there were oh, yeah. attempts of Russians, Russian interference. But where they made the leap, and, I, and this is really important because I came up with this a lot in, in the writing. I think it's in, even in, as far back as the Hofstadter, where you start off with something that is true. Mm-hmm. And you go, JFK was very unpopular. He had a lot of enemies. Or you go, the Masons are quite powerful and kind of secretive and creepy, yeah. right? Yeah. Like true things. And then you make the leap. Mm-hmm. And so then you make the leap to go, and this is why it happened. So saying that there were all these, that there were some pernicious influences in the Brexit and the Trump votes. True. Proven. Saying that those were the decisive factors and that it was all a plot, you know, involving, and then, you know, point to very complicated diagram on the wall Mm. that's where you've made that leap into the world of conspiracy and i think sometimes the leap feels like a series of quite small steps yeah you you don't realize how far you've gone i think it's when you surrender your sort of better nature or your more advanced sense of reason because you've gone for an easy story now right and in fact, if you want to look at Brexit, you have to take into account a lot of things, you know, town decline and blah. I mean, it's really hard and it, it's tiring. And I think that it, there's this mm. constant seduction. However, not everyone is as seduced as everyone else. And there, there is a higher propensity for people of particular political persuasions to be affected by this, particularly on the extreme left and the extreme right. Anyone who has a political ideology that is to do with us versus them usually expressed through a kind of populism like the people versus the elite Mm. is usually more Mm. susceptible. And the reason for that is that intergroup conflict is key to almost all 
conspiracy theories. That's the idea that my group is fine. We spoke about this earlier. Mm. My group is perfect. Something's going wrong. It can't be to do with the activity of my group. It therefore must be to do with this shadowy external enemy or an internal enemy. Mm. So very often, of course, Jewish people, immigrants, you know, gay men, this kind of thing. But also the elite itself, when we think of politicians, that can be the outgroup. They can be internal mm. and they can be quite powerful. And in fact, there's a real tendency to uh, exaggerate their, their power. This is very well documented, by the way. There's sort of one study in Poland, another in Indonesia, testing it's called in the literature collective narcissism, a real sort of exaggeration of the of the the value of your in-group with your proclivity to believe in a conspiracy theory about the outside. And usually the, this is what's considered in psychology to be the, the sort of the, the fundamental sort of basis upon which the psychology uh, turns into conspiracy theory. A really interesting paper in 1994, this is probably the sort of the most famous paper on the subject by Ted Goertzel addresses that point that you mentioned earlier of how likely you are to believe another conspiracy theory if you believe one. It is the single strongest predicator of one conspiracy belief is that you already believed another. And he described it in a way that was very influential as a monological belief system, that you have these mutually supporting, self-sealing and expanding ideas that back each other up. However, Recently, that's come under quite a lot of strain. There's a paper from 2012 by Michael Wood and others called Dead and Alive Beliefs in Contradictory Conspiracy Theories. And what he found was that, yes, you're likely to believe another conspiracy theory if you believe one, but that even applies if they're ex utterly contradictory to one yeah. another. So they tested the theory that Princess Diana faked her own death and found that the people who believed that were more likely to believe also that she was murdered. Yeah. <laughs> they, they tested the theory that um, Osama bin Laden was already dead when US special forces raided his compound and found the people that believed it were more likely to believe that he's still alive. I mean, most of the theories put for this was that the real loyalty is to the overarching conspiracy theory, which typically speaking is official narratives are not to be trusted and people in power involved in cover-ups. Yeah. And the, there's a much softer yeah. degree of loyalty to the individual theories. I also think, and this is not in the literature, so it's me just talking, you know, whatever my own nonsense, that there is a form of epistemological breakdown at some point. Epistemology is the study of, you know, how you process information, well, how, how you find truth. And that once you sign up to these ideas of, you know, it is possible that these shadowy actors can control everything and control the population and the TV stations and everything. That's not true. You have essentially insulated yourself against refutation by any kind of expertise or by any other figure. Yeah. And therefore, there's just nothing to stop you just spinning wildly out of control in any given direction. You start picking them up and you might not even realize that they are contradictory by this point because you have lost the capacity to properly scrutinize the information but, which you're presenting. By definition, if you have evidence that, that contradicts what they think, you are not trustworthy source of information well exactly yeah. yeah exactly this is what this to me is what it means to be self-sealing you know something that can contain itself perfectly and be resistant to any kind of intervention i also think it's important to mention at this point what you said earlier of storytelling it's a detective story it's an agatha christie novel where you are the hero and that is a profoundly attractive notion for a lot of people that lets them dismiss complexity uh, and embrace of i have to say here then that there is a kind of a pushback against this form of analysis that says psychology is not the place to find answers to this issue. And probably the lead person talking about it is Kasim Kassam, who's professor of philosophy at Warwick, who essentially says, no, what we need is a functional analysis. And if we were to say, what is a heart? What would you say? It's an organ for pumping blood. Right. We think about the function of a thing. So what is the function of this stuff? 
And his answer is conspiracy theories are first and foremost forms of political propaganda. Now, over and over, it's not just, oh, some people are susceptible to stuff and off they go. In fact, what they do is they sign up to stuff that furthers their political agenda. What is the point of Holocaust denial to exonerate the Nazis, to make Jewish people look bad? What is the point of saying the Sandy Hook Elementary School massacre in Connecticut in 2012 was a false flag operation to prevent calls for for gun control? And, you know, over and over, mm. they are a kind of ideology. This is his view. And it doesn't really matter, again, whether people really believe them or are being completely cynical about it. The, the right analytical approach is a fundamentally political approach. So, look, I think it's clearly a little bit of both. A bit political, a bit psychological. Because even if it is primarily a, an ideological act, you still have to figure out who is most susceptible and why they're susceptible to that kind of propaganda, right? right. So you ha- there's no way of not talking about psychology in it. I, I, and I, but I do agree that the, the psychological literature is actually quite weak and flimsy unless you have some political analysis on top of it. Because you just have these psychologists sort of sit there and go, it doesn't really matter to me whether it's true or it's false. I'm just looking at the brain. You think, mm. well, no, the thing is, if you do that, you, it, it's really quite hard for you to seriously do it. And let's face it, if this stuff was all true, you wouldn't be investigating it in the first place. You know, you're not looking for like the cheeseburgers, people that believe that cheeseburgers make you fat, you know, because we recognize that these are true things. You're treating people in this way because evidently it's false. So you can afford to admit that. However, I do think we have to, along the lines of what you said, go further than just a political analysis. And it has to be philosophical as well. And that comes back to that point that you, you were making at the beginning of you know, ultimately, there was a period called the Enlightenment, where we decided that we have to use reason to understand the world and to have doubt about the world. Mm. We do not act like we have certainty. We have doubt about the world. We use science and reason empiricism to discover it. One of the ways we do that is because we know that none of us have all the time to find out everything about everything, Mm. is we have expertise. We have objective standards of expertise. You know, if someone tells me that I have a heart condition, I'm not going to go home and spend seven years of my life trying to master a heart condition. I'm going to trust in someone who has the expertise. And that network, that ability to scrutinize and balance expertise is the manner in which we gain objective information about the world. The other part of the Enlightenment was the focus on the individual rather than the group, not the religion, not the country. And to say, well, actually, it's not just about your in-group virtue and the out-group hatred. It's about each person as an individual. And that creates a form of politics which is much more moderate, which is more transactional, which is about balancing your competing interests and rights. Right. So it seems to me that every time that we have conspiracy theories, it is also a philosophical outlook a rejection of the of the Enlightenment towards the sort of grotesque certainties of religious conservatism, forms of fascism or at least nativism, and forms of communism, whether watered down or not, that reject that Enlightenment outlook and instead push, I'm being a bit controversial on communism and the Enlightenment, but put that to one side, instead push for the group and for the rejection of evidence in, in the face of your idea. Well, where are conspiracy theories kind of almost driving countries in you know, Russia, so it's then certainly in Hungary, you know, there's a huge sort of homophobic conspiracy there, mm-hmm, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And of course, anti-Semitism around Soros. Iran, um, Hamas, the Hamas Charter quotes from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. You know, Venezuela, although, again, obviously there have been attempts to try and right. remove that government, but it's gone far more into the paranoid mm-hmm. style. Poland. Poland. But then, of course, I suppose where we, where we should end up is the fact that, sure, you know, certain kinds of mindsets and kinds of political system are more prone to conspiracist thinking. But we all are 
the, the dead cat example, which I think you mentioned really early on, is is just so important. It's a conspiracy you don't realize is a conspiracy theory. Yeah. That like something happened, the government's in trouble over something. Then another story comes up, which is how the news works. It's how life works. There's always something else. Mm-hmm. You assume that that other thing has been planted, you know, plus you've got the evidence that Linton Crosby did use the phrase dead cat. So you've oh, got, and that we know the got, government does this does all the it. time. Of so you've got a it. thing that does exist, but then there's that leap so basically, it explains every news item, even if that news item demonstrably does not kick the main scandal off the front pages and, right. in fact, is forgotten 24 hours later, you know? And so it's sort of, you don't want to us and them conspiracies thinking, like the paranoid style. And I get, I suppose, there is where, like, Hostatter is just, because like, he was such a reasonable dude. And he was writing in 1964, <laughs> and he was perhaps able to look over at these guys and go, Ooh, you should hear what they believe. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think now it's really, really easy. You know, who has never tweeted a fucking hoax mm-hmm. by mistake? Because oh, yeah. it seemed to add up, right? And it seemed to suit their your political purposes and your psychological biases. So I think to think of conspiracism as a thing that everybody can suffer from to some degree, as opposed to just there are conspiracy theorists and people who are not, even though obviously there are, you know, Extremes. I don't, I'm not the same as like Piers Corbyn or Alex Jones, mm-hmm. but I do think you You're have not. to sort of monitor. <laughs> more moderate I don't that. have the energy. <laughs> um, you have to monitor your own your own thinking. And that's a hundred percent true. And that takes discipline and diligence, and it's tiring. And the only reward you get for it is the reassurance that you're engaged in something that might one day achieve truth. Well, thank you for listening. As usual, send in your thoughts and, in this case, presumably arguments of why we are um, Listen, e- people. MSM shills <laughs> working for the, the, the Rothschilds, the Bilderberg Group, Bill Gates and the Trilateral Commission. Um, what's, the, um, what's, what's the email address, by the way? We should, we should actually give the email address to people. It's, uh, it. it's Illuminati at <laughs> OneWorldGovernment.com. Okay, and I think the real email address is originstory at podmasters.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Origin Story. We'll see you next time. The truth is out there, possibly. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Origin Story was written and presented by Dorian Linsky and Ian Dunt, with music and audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The group editor was Andrew Harrison, and Origin Story is a Podmasters production. <laughs>